Paul Nobles from Eat to Perform, and I am sitting here with my guest, Susan Kleiner. Susan uh, recently did the modules or some model modules to add to our Better Dieting course, which were super well received by the community because we've had um, a lot of want for more content there. And so uh, that was something we made a big priority, and, and so Susan stepped up. Uh, for those of you that don't know Susan, I'll give you a brief idea, but she's worked with some of the biggest athletes, many people that you would know. Um, she's fairly shy about uh, talking about who those specifically are for various reasons, and maybe she can go into that. But I'm going to let her introduce herself because um, I'm fairly certain that it's going to be a modest introduction compared to um, how, how she's perceived in the industry. So take it away, Susan. Thanks so much, Paul. It's really nice to be here. Um, yeah, so I'm a sports nutritionist. I call myself a high-performance nutritionist because a lot of people, when they think of sports nutrition, think it's only for athletes. And for me, um, it's for anybody who cares about their fitness and who exercises regularly. Um, I have a PhD in nutrition and human performance. I'm a registered dietitian. Uh, and my original research was working with competitive male and female bodybuilders. And I have gone on to really explore the nutritional needs of muscle building, strength and power, but also expanded to all kinds of sports and, and athletics. And I consult with individuals, with teams, with anybody who, as I said, exercises and wants to be more healthy and fit all the way to Olympians and pro athletes, uh, competitive sports teams. I'm very proud right now to be the high performance nutritionist for our local WNBA team, the Seattle Storm, who are the reigning WNBA world champions. Uh, and so uh, I have had the honor of uh, being a co-founder of the International Society of Sport Nutrition and just had amazing experiences over the years. Uh, and so um, I've watched athletes um, at the peaks as well as the valleys of their careers. And that's part of, I think, what we're going to talk about today is what led me to, to the work that I've done on food and mood. And, uh, and that was through working with an athlete at the lowest point in his career. So, um, so it's, it's just been a fun ride. I love what I do. I talk a lot about food. Uh, I also work with a company called Vitargo, which is a um, very uh, highly engineered starch carbohydrate that is the fastest carbohydrate fuel from mouth to muscle and has been a real game changer uh, in the diets of my athletes for about 12 years. And I have the fortune of working as the director of science and communication for the past about 18 months for Vitargo. So uh, we get to talk about all kinds of things and, and, uh, and have some fun today, Paul. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, you're mentioning Vitargo and I was talking to my wife because I'm actually just coming out of a deficit cycle. And, uh, you know, when I talked about the foods that I'm going to bring back in, they're, they're so boring, you know, one of them is Vitargo. Right. So um, if you're not familiar with Vitargo, we've been a fan of it for a really long time. Um, I think the big advantage, of course, is just having available energy, especially when, you know, you're kind of on these longer sessions or you're trying to get um, you know, a quicker load as it relates to glucose into the muscle, things of this nature. And so uh, maybe we can kind of get into a little bit of that. But one of the things that I wanted to talk about, because we're, we're looking at developing a course with Susan on the Good Mood Diet. And, 
you know, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you know that I'm not scared of, of talking about, you know, mental health and the relationship it has with food in general, right? And, you know, I've talked a lot about the 10-year period where, you know, I really started to struggle with kind of the food piece and then, you know, the adherence piece, the compliance piece, but also the the mental health stuff that, that goes with that. So can we talk a little bit about that piece first? Because I don't think a lot of people really make the um, connection that there's a chemical change that happens in your body when you eat less food, and that not only affects your your um, brain, but it has a high effect on your gut and then your gut's relationship with the brain. So why don't you take it starting there? Well, so I always, when I when I talk with clients or I give presentations, I always say, you know, there's nothing like a well-fed brain. And we are so um, uh, well-built to recognize food coming into the body that we know that when we have a perception of being hungry and we put food in our mouth, frankly, even before we put it in our mouth, when we see food, we start to salivate. Our, we we react. We know it's there. And from the moment we put it in our mouth, long before it's hit our bloodstream and the body reacts and we know that glucose is getting to the brain or, or nutrients getting into the bloodstream, we have a sense of, ah, you know, there's food there. It, it, we just there's there's an emotional but a clear physiological response. Food is so important that just seeing it, we get a reaction, and just putting it in our mouths, we get a reaction, and we have sensors in our mouth for all the different macronutrients, but particularly carbohydrates. So, So it is so critically important. Why wouldn't it impact how we feel? We know it impacts how we feel even when we don't have it in our mouths. So so just starting there as sort of the basic recognition and foundation of the power that food has on our brain and our central nervous system is the foundation of uh, what I call, uh, and the book that I developed called The Good Mood Diet. Um, it it's it's essential to accept that and and then sort of the next step is the acknowledgement that if you know sports nutrition or if you've been looking at sort of good weight loss diets that many times they are missing a small piece because feeding the brain and the central nervous system takes a little more than uh, or a little more variety than you might feel you need to fuel your muscles or to get weight loss. So one of the things that you mentioned in the book that, uh, you know, it was interesting because, you know, as my staff was reading it, and it is available right now, um, you know, so. part of the course work that we're going to <laughs> um, holding up the book, which doesn't, translate well on a podcast but for the people watching <laughs> that's right <laughs> uh, but my staff was like you know talking through the first couple chapters and they were like wow it feels like you wrote this um and i felt like that uh in many of my conversations with susan where we're just like these kindred spirits as it relates to food but one of the things that you mentioned in the book that i think you could elaborate on a little bit is that there's so many people, and this was actually an emphasis of an article that I wrote yesterday that um, I think may be the best article I've ever written, right? Um, And what you talked about was this belief that you have to be miserable when you're dieting, um, or there's this process of, of misery that you have to go through. And I've always kind of thought that 
there, I, I mean, I, I want to say this truthfully, the way that I truly believe it, but I feel like a lot of people want to be punished for some bad behavior rather than kind of just clear up some maybe, you know, wrong ways that they might be doing something at the moment, right? So rather than, you know, just kind of fixing a few things along the way, they would rather, you know, just cut out a bunch of food groups and be miserable as long as possible or suffer as long as possible so they could go back to eating normal. In my argument, or at least the argument that I made in, in that, and I think is similar to what you make, is that along the way you can fix some habits that can last long term. Like I mentioned, you know, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later in the podcast, but unconsciously I have been avoiding you know, kind of whole grain foods, things of this nature. Susan did a, a video with me, and I'll probably make it into a podcast here real soon, uh, maybe as an addendum to this. That was a real good um, advocate position for whole grains and adding them back into your diet for various reasons. And we'll get into that on a separate point. But I think what I really kind of want to hone in on is this thought process of, of, you know, this miserable approach to dieting as opposed to kind of this, this maybe intervention that might be a little bit better as you gradually move towards a more enlightened way of eating, right? And then maybe you can talk a little bit about how the good mood diet kind of does that. So, um, as I travel around the country over years and, and as well as talk to my own clients, I have collected stories about people who diet. And um, first of all, between that and the National Weight Loss Registry that tells us what leads to successful weight loss, restriction is not it. Um, that's just to to put data there that people say, yes, I eat less and I move more, which sounds very simple, but, um, and their exercise for their maintenance is very important there or their, you know, after having lost their weight, but, but really restricting and painfully dieting is not one of the things that has led to successful weight loss for, for most people. Number one. Secondly, then what I hear from people who are not who have not successfully kept their weight off is that they eat by default. Uh, you know, this is I can't eat this. I can't eat that. I can't eat the next thing. Everything is is restricted or limit or avoid a lot of negative uh, verbiage and they eat by default. Whatever's left over is all they get to eat. And if there's anything that's going to make us feel bad, that's it. Food is, it, it touches such a primitive part of our brain. Sharing food with others is, it go, you know, harkens back to, you know, breaking bread in a, in a very primitive setting where when you shared your sustenance, you, you made a very strong emotional connection with another person. We use food um, to, in celebrations, both happy and sad. We use it at work. Uh, we use it to fuel our exercise. We use it to nourish our families. And, and if every single time we're interacting with food, all we can think about is what we can't eat, um, I am not surprised that people are in a bad mood or they're depressed. Um, I there is an abundance of food that we need to fuel our bodies well, to nourish our bodies and feed our brains, uh, a wide variety of foods. And I want my clients to think about what they need to eat, not what they can't eat next. And that releases them 
from all this negative self-talk and all this restriction. And once you see the world as a place of abundance rather than a place of restriction and scarcity, you begin to experiment with a wider variety of foods. That wider variety of foods satiates both mind and body as well as nourishes mind and body. And you're no longer only focused on what you can't do. You, 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 you know, expand your horizons in, in many different ways. And um, food gets put in the place where it deserves to be, nourishing your body. But it is not all-encompassing the thing that you think about all day long because you can't have it. And, um, and, and as you say, it really is an intervention. It's a philosophy of an approach to food and eating. And that is half of the Good Mood Diet. It is a philosophy about food and eating as well as a nutrition plan. Yeah, I think a mutual friend of ours once said, um, that she had really never seen anyone hate themselves lean, right? <laughs> right. And I feel, and I believe that was Lee Peel that said that. But um, the thing that the thing that occurs to me as as you were talking is that the way that most people diet um, reminds me of the Peter Principle, right? And the, and the Peter Principle, for those that don't know, is is you know, in a corporation, you're basically um, promoted to your level of incompetence, right? Right. <laughs> and what I think happens for the way that most people diet and the way that, that I learned to not diet was that, um, and, well, first of all, I think that there's a lot of peace and anonymity, right? When you go to a coach, both you and I coach people. And we walk them through which what is largely mental, right? Like the the amounts of food, types of foods, things of this nature. Those don't tend to be the big problems people are dealing with. It's really how you're going to change your life. When I look back at, you know, my life unattended, right? That's how I view the period before, um, really before dieting, right? So, so there was the, the time before dieting where, you know, ironically, um, when I started dieting, I was 185, trying to get down to 170. By the time I was done dieting and where basically e-perform started, I was 265, right? <laughs> and a friend of mine said to me, because we were doing a podcast, and she said, someone asked her, because it was a Q&A, someone asked her, um, you know, how she ended up obese. And she's like, oh, that's easy. I dieted my way there. And people don't realize the changes to your metabolic system, right? How your body processes food. And then I think what happens for most folks is they don't really change how they view food. Like I mentioned the Vitargo um, and and, and talking to my wife about adding the Vitargo back and the creatine back. Um, and then I, I, I posted a picture in the ETP community group or the Perform community group um, where I showed some smoothie bowls that I would be adding. I think a lot of people listening to this would find that odd, right? Because you would, you would think that when you come out of a fat, like what, what do most people do when they come out of a dieting cycle? right? It's cheesecake and beer and these, these foods that, you know, when you look at it, right? And, and it's interesting because there's no preface to this discussion, right? I mean, either Susan's going to agree with me or she's not going to agree with me, but it's going to be a discussion. But when you look at beer, cheesecake, cheese curds, uh, hamburgers, what do they have all in common? There are a lot of calories truncated in a very small place, right? And when you haven't eaten a lot of calories, you I love it when people say to me, you know, 
I'm a sugar addict or I have these cravings. It's like, well, you know, first let's address the under eating part and then we can address the sugar part, right? Because I'm not going to make an argument for refined sugar, but if you're eating 800 calories a day, it's probably not the sugar that's the problem. It's probably the amount of food that you're eating. Mm -hmm. And so I always think like, what are you going to crave? You're not going to crave chicken and kale, right? You're going to crave McDonald's hamburgers, you know? Right, right. It's physiological, you know. So as I say, you know, most weight loss diets are 1,200 calories or or fewer. And and that 800 calorie to 1,000 calorie diet, you know, I, I think that what I say in the book, it's not enough to feed a small pigeon, you know. I mean, so so you're not bad. You don't have no willpower. It is a physiological drive. You need to eat more and your brain is going to drive you to eat the most concentrated source of energy that you can find. And so cheesecake or a, or a, a fast food burger or uh, some kind of a shake or, you know, a milkshake or whatever, those are the foods that you are going to go for. And it is a physiological drive. And that's why feeding yourself well and focusing on how you feel, because people feel like crap on these diets. And the reason they go off is their survival mechanism kicks in. You know, that's right. That's good. You should go off the diet. It is not a sustainable, healthy thing to be on. And so your brain kicks you out. Um, and the people who can stick to it are masochists. So, so the, the, which isn't a healthy drive either. So, um, right. I, 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 think, think I just want to, I just want to intervene there for just a second because, um, I don't want to gloss over that point, right? Because I think that mentally there's a lot that goes on there and, you know, if you're constantly cuddling up to these low caloric ways of thinking and you're scared of food, you're not alone, right? I think Susan right. can relate to that, right? Because, you know, everyone has these fears related to, you know, I know Susan is traveling, you know, she's kind of this, I, I call her like Carmen San Diego because, you know, she's all over the world. <laughs> And when you're in Malaysia or Colombia, you know, often you don't control the food. And so you can get some misgivings related to that. I don't think that's very different from many people who have sort of painted this themselves into this corner and then they become fearful of food and then potentially open themselves up to eating disorder type behavior and, and things of that nature. What I think that, you know, Susan and I advocate for is a little bit more of a realistic intervention where food is actually an ally along the way, mm -hmm. starting to change some habits that allow you to exercise better and, and things of this nature. There's so many people that say to me, you know, um, can you do eat reform and not work out? I said, well, that kind of misses the whole perform part, but it also misses the you being human part. I remember my grandmother growing up, you know, she dieted, you know, the only active pictures I have of my grandmother, now she did deal with an injury, right? Um, she had a work injury that kind of sidelined her for a bit, but she did not work to get back healthy. And I don't remember my grandmother ever not dieting, but I also don't remember my grandmother ever not being obese, right? And mm -hmm. so when you look at the mechanisms of dieting, you're going to get a lot farther along viewing food as an ally, viewing food as this thing that, you know, what can I eat that's going to help me become who I want to be, right? Those kinds of things. And I feel like if you're gravitating towards more of the negative type of thing, maybe you sort of analyze that piece of it. Why are you 
wanting to embrace the struggle so much. I think with social media, you get kind of this negative message. I, you know, I've been on Instagram all day, and boy, it's, it's just like, you know, I mean, the, the way that people describe it is struggle porn, right? Where, you know, you have this, this just almost glorifying of what a struggle is, right? And I mean, I don't know about everyone listening here, but I'm so sick of the Beast Mode t-shirts, right? <laughs> everybody's mode, everybody's crushing it every single day. And I can tell you as someone that now has been on this fitness journey for 12 years, things of this nature, there is a peace in just going to the gym and working out to get better, right? You're not working out as a punishment for what you ate right. the night before, things of that nature. And I, th I think for a lot of people that are, you know, and I, I can really relate to this as I'm saying this to you, that for, for 10 years, you know, as I'm struggling with this eat less model, because you know, like most people out there, I wanted to eat as little as possible and get back to normal. But I really had no idea what normal looked like, right? Because in in my real world, as I'm eating less, like you said, I'm going to crave milkshakes. Or in the case of someone that's maybe, um, you know, walking through a difficult mental period through dieting, you know, now all of a sudden alcohol, every opportunity you get with alcohol, that becomes, you know, kind of a, a, a place of peace. And then the problem that you run into that if you don't view those things as allies, I'm going to take it even one step further. If the group you're in or the people that you know, you know, kind of say to you, oh, everybody can have one cheat, right? That is such a negative mind. Mindset. It's a horrible way to think about what do we cheat on, right? I mean, I talk about this on the podcast all the time, but we cheat on our taxes, we cheat on our wives, we cheat on all these. It's just such a negative connotation. If you plan for it and you viewed food as an ally and you said, okay, here's how my food stacks up this weekend, and then on Fridays I you know, go out and have wine with the ladies or I go out and have pizza with my wife and afterwards we have ice cream, you can plan all those things into a you know, positive way of eating. And I would, I would challenge you to think about what I'm saying there. Are you invested in the cheat mentality? Are you invested in the negative piece? Because that's a choice. Like every day you wake up and you have the choice to be a superhero or a supervillain. You you have the choice to have a positive mindset related to food. And there's a lot of people out there that have a strong investment in you not having that relationship with food. These horrible lists of food you cannot eat, all these types of things. And so I wanted to kind of kind of get that piece in there because you know without kind of making that connection, I think that um, it, it, it can sort of get glossed over. But so let's talk a little bit more about some of the specifics of the good mood diet, because um, like I said, uh, today, you know, I had my whole grain salad. I mean, since that, like I said, you know, I was not avoiding grains. It just had subconsciously become this thing where I was just viewing other foods as 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 more valuable, right? And so now, you know, I I've said the texted Susan, this is just amazing the experiences that I'm having with this food. But there's a place here locally called the Green in the Grain. And so I have the salad that's a whole grain salad. And it's really been just a game changer on a lot of levels, right? And so why don't we talk a little bit about some of the foods that sort of help gut flora and, you know, kind of the emphasis of, of what the Good Mood Diet's all about. Well, um, you know, there's it's all about, again, combinations. It's, it's a, a sort of variety 
as well as timing and combining a little bit and really understanding the biochemistry of food in the brain. And, and when you eat, if you think of, you know, sort of if you were ever a kid who played with a chemistry set, knowing that your metabolism is kind of your Bunsen burner and the food that you put into your body, which is your Erlenmeyer flask, are the chemicals. The food are the chemicals that you put in there and you kind of swish them around and they get into your stomach. And as I said, you know, even before you swallow, just looking at them, you start to feel better. You know that you're going to be nourished. Your brain recognizes that. Food gets into your mouth and, and there are carbohydrate sensors in your mouth. We know that from our research in sports so that you can swish and spit. Uh, a carbohydrate and, um, fluid and you can enhance performance very short term, but it kind of tricks your brain into opening up the fuel gates because it thinks that fuel is coming in. So the thing about each macronutrient is that carbohydrate is fuel for your brain. Um, yes, you can use fat and uh, and ketones to fuel your brain, but that's secondary fuel. Um, what makes you happy is your primary fuel. And we know that carbohydrate stimulates a whole cascade of events in the brain and influencing neurotransmitters that in, that raise mood. But they don't work alone. You need protein with the carbohydrate to get tryptophan which is the precursor in your blood to manufacturing serotonin in your brain. And serotonin, again, is your you know, primary feel-good neurotransmitter. But you can't get tryptophan into the, into the brain without carbohydrate around. And so carbohydrate plus protein enhances the uptake of tryptophan into the brain. And you feel pretty good pretty fast. So why not eat them together? Uh, we also know that uh, the healthy fats, all the fats that you know about from omega-3 fats, the fish oils, to monounsaturated fats from avocados uh, and, and healthy fats from uh, nuts and seeds, um, we know that those healthy fats are part of the lining of your entire central nervous system. And fats are very important. If you've ever looked at a mammalian brain, it's very fatty, it's white. But the fats that you eat really matter. And so uh, particularly fish oils are very important. They were around when we were very primitive celled organisms. We were marine um, uh, organisms before we were on land. And the fish oils are critically important for the health of, of our brains, uh, keeping our brain cells pliable or, or, or movable rather than rigid so that um, uh, messages can move, both chemical and electrical messages can move quickly from one cell to the other. And so we know that that impacts our mood, our mental focus, our memory, as well as the health of the brain and the brain cells. And so, so why not eat fats at the same time that you eat carbs and protein? And so, so just starting from there, every time you eat, except around exercise, and we can talk about why you don't want fiber, why you don't want fat right around exercise, but, but mostly it is um, getting your carbohydrate, protein, and fat together every time you eat keeps your brain very well fueled, keeps your blood sugar even all day long, keeps your, you know, all, all, the, all the pieces, parts of, of your body, but also your brain well-fueled um, and, and feeling good. It's not just the fuel. It's not just the fuel. It's the function of these macronutrients. And then there are specific foods that are really special, what I call my feel-great foods, sort of my strategies. And, and one on the list are eggs. And so um, I don't know how much you talk about egg yolks in, in Eat to Perform, but 
you know, if you're one of those people out there who's still dumping your egg yolks down the drain or feeding them to your dogs, <laughs> start eating them again. Because, uh, first of all, there's never been a study that showed that uh, egg yolks raised cholesterol levels just to begin with. And that was, you know, just a shame for the poor poultry farmers, as well as all of us out here that removed egg yolks from our diets, because um, egg yolks are our main dietary source of a B vitamin called choline. And choline is half of the most abundant neurotransmitter in the body, acetylcholine. It works every time you think or move. So that's basically 24-7. Acetylcholine is critical to your ability to think clearly, to react clearly, to move rapidly. Choline also has another job several other jobs, but one in particular is in concert with, um, as, a, as a phospholipid, phosphatidylserine. Both these, phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine, are in egg yolks. And together, they work to maintain channels in the brain cell membrane so that nutrients can pass in and toxins can pass out. So you keep your brain cells well fed and you keep them clean by eating egg yolks. And we know that nationwide, we have alarm bells ringing that most Americans are marginally deficient in choline because we are not eating egg yolks. So, and I don't know how deep we'll go into this one way or the other, but I think if you look back at the history of dieting, right, what you're really going to look at are the periods where low fat is going to be kind of in abundance and then, you know, low carb is going to be in abundance. And there's, you know, um, both sides, right, and for a long time. What Susan is saying and what I think that, we all need to be listening to, or at least this is what we've been advocating for for a long time, is that if you have to view any food as bad, then that potentially has kind of this mental outcome that's sort of negative, you know, because what she's saying about ketones is is interesting. There's always people that argue that you know, carbohydrates are, are not essential. While true, right? Um, you know, if you had a Ferrari, you know, it might run on diesel, but it runs better on gasoline, right? And so when we look at, you know, fuels and trying to make things easy, when you have food as an ally into your struggle, now a lot of people will look at, say, well, Paul, you know, aren't you reducing people's calories occasionally? Yes, but when we look at, how people diet through eat to perform. There's one really big difference, right? One, we have very short time periods, right? And part of the reason why we put that in place is for adherence, right? If you're just crushing it, right, and you're losing weight and your goal is to lose weight, we're not going to stop you, right? But at the end of the day, I think most people find that they can kind of reach their goals, usually at a much higher calorie point than they thought so previously because they haven't excluded foods, right? And so when you look at other diets that are excluding avocados or excluding, you know, carbohydrates, what you're really, what they're really excluding is they're choosing one side or the other related to calories, right? And so when you view calories, like, like Susan is saying, from the chemistry experiment standpoint, and, you, and those things are lighting up your brain, lighting up your, your, your energy levels, things of this nature, it's all those small little benefits that you get that allow for the big change, right? And so if you're listening to this and you go, well, you know, I just want to lose 50 pounds in, you know, five weeks and then get back to normal, right? 
there is no normal after nuclear bombing your city, right? And what I see, especially right now with social media and and just these groups that are just advocating for these really extreme options, is that there's nothing but people in these groups that sound like they're nuclear bomb victims, right? right. And, and they're all you know, taking supplements for their adrenals. And there's always this big supplement, you know, factory going on behind the scenes that doesn't have to happen when you're eating an adequate amount of food for what you do, right? And then if you go, well, I don't do that much. I started with walking and walking is still to this day one of my most effective ways of losing weight and controlling weight, right? And I think what happens when you are, you know, hypocaloric, where your your diet is, you know, for women, 1,200, 800 to 1,200, you don't feel like you're doing anything. And, right. oh, by the way, you know, what you often see is that many of those folks are not sleeping. And then they're right. wondering why they're in insomniac. Well, guess what? It it's a direct relationship to your food, and right. so when we're letting cortisol run amok, when we're letting, you know, you know what Susan is talking about is that food not isn't just macros, right? This is another big thing of hers, right? That stop thinking of food as macros, right, and start viewing it as food. But I would challenge you to view it as microbes, right? Because when you look at, you know, the vitamins that you're deficient in, you know, you would be better off getting it from food variety. She's mentioned that a few times. And we have a mutual friend, Mike T. Nelson, who talks a lot about variety, right? And you don't need to really go into it too much in depth, but you can do whatever you would like. But I think there's a lot of folks out there that are struggling with all these different things that aren't viewing performance, aren't viewing food as a big part of the answer, and then they're gravitating just towards the exact opposite, right? And look, we've all done it. We've all gone on a chicken wing and beer fest for a while, right? But I remember a gal, she was at my gym. And she said that um, she had Dairy Queen once this summer. And, you know, that did it. And I just, I just, you know, I, a lot of times at my gym, this is the place I work out, I just have to shut my mouth, right? But Dairy Queen didn't do anything to you. In fact, Dairy Queen might have been the answer to the problem that you might have been having at that moment, right? There was a reason you gravitated towards Dairy Queen in that moment. You know? yeah, the reason, right, so the reason that, that she thinks that Dairy Queen did her in is the mentality of the dieting. So I say to people, you know, if you ate a brownie, you ate something that's not on your plan, whatever your plan is, you've got a plan. And that's key to have some kind of a plan and not just shooting from the hip. You know, if you don't have a financial plan, you don't become wealthy. If you don't have a career plan, you don't get a career, right? So, so you need some kind of a nutrition plan if you have nutrition goals or body goals. So she's got her plan and she went off her plan and she had her Dairy Queen, right? And from that moment on, She's trying to reconfigure her plan in her mind to still get in the plan with the Dairy Queen because the Dairy Queen is outside the plan. And so she's beaten herself up. She can't make it work. She becomes paralyzed because she's done something outside the plan and now she's trapped. She goes to sleep feeling terrible about herself. She probably doesn't sleep very well because she's having this argument with herself and beating herself up. She gets up in the morning. She feels like a failure. 
And she goes, oh, the hell with it. I'm not going to do that diet anymore. I can't do it anyways. And that's the end. So it wasn't the food. It was her reaction. And what I tell people is, I hope that when you ate that Dairy Queen or that cheesecake or that brownie, that it was the best tasting whatever it was that you could imagine. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed it that you focused on it and you really enjoyed eating it. And then I want you to think about what you need to eat next. And okay. so I want to add what she's saying here because I think that this is important. Oftentimes in those scenarios, people will gravitate towards the most convenient food that is a, you know, energy dense, right? Because they're hungry and they have cravings. To piggyback off of what Susan's saying, in my plan, right, similar to exactly what she's saying, I'm not saying I'll never eat a food that's not a home run, but why would you eat a food that's not a home run, right? Like if you're viewing food as a positive, you know, I think that just eating a frozen pizza, now don't get me wrong, there's moments where frozen pizza might be like the best thing in the whole world, right? But if I have the option between a, a frozen pizza and, and maybe guilt because I'm eating outside of the plan, I, I, think, I think the whole guilt thing, we've, we can kind of be done with that, right? We're right, right. All we're past that. <laughs> related to food is just a, a waste of time when you're talking about viewing food, all foods, as part of you know the overall plan, whether they they work for you or don't work for you. Whatever you ate in any one given moment really isn't going to be that big of a deal. But but piggybacking off of what Susan's saying is that. Don't just gravitate towards the most convenient energy dense source, right? Have some thoughts about, you know, what, I mean, I mean, like a great example is that the Minnesota State Fair is this weekend. I can tell you exactly what I'm going to eat at the Minnesota State Fair. I eat the same exact thing every single year. And I try to add one or two foods that just came into the Minnesota State Fair, because I can fit all that stuff within my plan and don't have to worry about it at all, right? Don't have to think about it at all. And it's a source of joy for me. It's a source of joy for my wife. It's a source of joy for my family. How many of you listening to this that are, are doing these overly restrictive diets and things, how many of you considering how much of this is affecting your family? Right. I can tell you that personally, that my grandmother's dieting affected me a lot throughout my life. Right. And I know and I hear this from women often that their mother's dieting had a big effect on them. Mm -hmm. So if if we can if we know that, then we also know that celebrating food can become the new norm. Right. And then we can look at it from a place of positive. And so I think that the natural tendency is to just try to lop off your arm so then 22 pounds are gone, when in reality, you'd be better to keep your arm because it's really useful, right? Picks up stuff, you know? And so if you can do that and make these small interventions along the way, the thing that always drives me crazy is when people say, you know, eating healthy or whatever is overwhelming or confusing. No, that's the narrative you're telling yourself just so you can stay uninformed. So then you can constantly go back to, well, I just don't get it, right? If there anything more important than your health, then, then, then that, right? If, if you could invest, you know, so I heard someone say this a long time ago and it really resonated with me um, and someone asked them, you know, how much they spend on their food each each month. And they said, as much as I can, right? And I always thought that was a great answer because, because 
you know, we all exist within budgets. I, I too can't just eat whatever I want, whenever I want from a financial standpoint. But when we look at, you know, choosing more healthful options, try and consider that, right? Like, like, you know, um, I can think of times where, you know, in the past I smoked, right? And so if you're a smoker, right, or you're over consuming alcohol, and then you transition some of that expense to positive experience, you ever think about like what that experience would be for you, right? Like mentally, the change from going to this place where you're coughing and hacking up and things of this nature to a positive relationship with food. Now I get that a lot of the audience that's listening to this probably aren't smoking, they are exercising relatively regularly, but most of the people that are listening to this can also refine things because I think what happens with exercise is we're all being kind of conditioned to use our exercise as punishment, as this negative thing. We view food as, you know, this really restrictive point of view. And this is the argument that Susan and I are saying, but, but, now let me challenge you just a little bit because what people will say in that instance and this is what they say to me is okay that's great paul but i need to lose weight right and i think what people often hear when you are advocating for a more inclusive approach to food is that there's there's no way that they're going to lose weight. So rather than tip my hand, I'm going to let you take that and let you answer it. You know, we've not rehearsed this or anything. <laughs> well, so the, I mean, this is the thing. It's if, if how you felt, or let's put it, let's turn it around. If what you weighed was really the driver, everybody would be thin. Because we know from gobs of research data that people lose weight on just about any low-calorie low diet. It doesn't matter which one you choose. It doesn't matter if you go Weight Watchers to keto to the zone diet to paleo. It doesn't matter which one you choose. If you stick to it and it's, it's fewer calories than you need, you will lose weight. But clearly... We have an obese society. And clearly, 99% of the people who lose weight gain it back. So it's not about what you weigh. It's about how you feel. And so if you can get on a plan that makes you feel great, then when you go off of it, which everybody does, life happens, things slip in between the cracks, right? Shit happens you notice that you don't feel as good and you go back to what was making you feel good. That's what you will resort back to is the plan that you had that made you feel better. And if you feel good and you keep following the plan, if you need to lose weight, you will. That's the key, that, that you feel better, you your mood lifts you have more energy so you go do your exercise so you're you're more active in your life rather than sitting on the couch eating haagen and watching the tube you're interacting with friends and family you're doing creative outlets you're 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 going to book club all you're you're busy and food is no longer the center of your life and and you feel good you are more productive at work. You're more productive at, at, at every other point in your life. So you're burning more calories all day long just from your daily activities. And you stick to the plan because you feel good. And if you feel good, you stick to the plan. And if you need to lose weight, you will because it is a plan that is organized around your calorie needs 
but you also naturally become more active. And and it isn't something that you have to um, that you have to be punished for or that is restrictive. The whole point is you feel better and 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 you are in a comfort zone. You're not way outside of that constantly in discomfort. And I don't think people are conscious of their discomfort all the time. Most people don't even know what it feels like to feel good anymore. No, what, what, what I really want to hammer home is, is what you're, you're emphasizing here, that when you're miserable and you're under eating, right, and you're viewing under eating as the answer, and you eat Haagen-Dazs and it makes you happy, that right there, that's it. That's the answer. What you're finding out is, is that energy is something that makes you happy, right? And so if we go, if we, if we, if we remove the guilt from the situation, because logic says that you should eat less because you weigh more or whatever, right? But let's, let's forget that we know any of that. And let's just focus on two things. One thing makes me miserable. One thing makes me happy. Then we go, what if Haagen-Dazs isn't the answer? What if maybe yogurt is a little bit of the answer or with a little bit of granola? And then we viewed it as just these small interventions along the way that would allow you to reach your, your end goal. See, what Susan is saying is that your timeline is the thing that's screwing you. Right. It's the expectation that you're setting up that is setting you in, in a negative way. And I want to segue because, Susan, we're probably getting pretty short on time here. But I want to segue to, to another piece that almost no one considers as we're talk, talking about this. The basis for Eat to Perform is that even when you reach your goals, you're still doing Eat to Perform. Right. Because. The biggest piece as it relates to obesity, as we age, your muscle atrophies, right? So your whole life, you really need, like when people think of Eat to Perform, they think, well, it's just another weight loss system. No, Eat to Perform is not. I know because I get to make it, right? And what Eat to Perform is about is you aging, you aging better. And you aging more appropriately. And for you to age more appropriately, you have to hold on to the muscle that you have and maybe potentially build some along the way, right? But as a 50-year-old man, that starts to get to be a little bit more difficult. So what happens is that people have kind of these wrong ideas and they're going to diet and, and abs are made in the kitchen. No, abs are made in the gym. Right. You've never seen anybody with abs that doesn't go to the gym. Right. And so if we view food as an ally in that instance and we view long diet breaks between the times where you have some type of food intervention, that's the more correct way of doing things. Right. And then, you know, when we talk about all of us are built a little bit differently. All of us are meant to look a little bit differently. I do think that that's sort of a, a whole different discussion, but we can really sort of end on the note of, does your diet make you miserable or does your diet make you happy, right? And if your diet makes you miserable, you will quit. And the reason you will quit is because you're sane. Right. Like this. Right. Is a, exactly. This is a, <laughs> right. Is that is that for if you look at, you know, why people succeed at anything, it's because they have passion. Right. And passion is the thing that carries you through the hard moments because you really believe in it. Right. But if you weren't passionate about it, Passion about your exercise, passion about your food, passion about your hobbies, passion about your family, passion about all these things, you'll quit. 
And the reason why you'll quit is you're sane. Because anybody that's been in a relationship or married for a really long time, you start to realize that it's so much better than to get flowers, or I'm trying to think of the male equivalent, right? To have the coffee made or the, the dishes done, right? And it sounds so boring to all the people that are courting, right? Right now, just kind of figuring out. It's like, but, but, what happens as you get older is you really start to prioritize your time. And so having your meals made is like a bonding thing between you and your mate, right? And so when we look at the things that kind of allow for that passion along the way or allow for you to get through those moments that are difficult, it truly comes out of love. It comes out of love for yourself. It comes out of love for food. It comes out of love for people. Right. And and this all might sound like really hokey hippie stuff. It's not <laughs> right. There's scientific. This is scientific fact, you know, mm -hmm. that when you are, you know, pushing yourself to the end where you're pushing your adherence to the absolute limit, you're going to find it. Right. And so. We just ultimately need to kind of emphasize that point. So um, long story short, if you're a need to perform member, right, you have to be a need to perform member to um, participate in this class with Susan. But it's we're aiming for September 15th. And we're really super excited because to have, you know, for many of you who haven't heard of Susan up to this point, just Google her. Right. And what you're going to see is that she's an amazing resource. You know, I met Susan through Molly Galbraith from um, Girls Gone Strong. And if you're familiar with Molly, you know, that's also, you know, someone that I hold in high regard. And so I think if we're looking at, you know, just trying to bring you guys resources or you gals resources, um, Susan's one of the resources that I always dreamt about bringing to you right and so that's really exciting for me she'll be guiding you through the process of the good mood diet and then walking through kind of the particulars because you know at the end of the day now is she going to be doing that in each person's file no our coaches will be doing that but there will be a um way for you to communicate we'll have classes and we'll give more details as those start to become you know, available, but but basically, you know, the plan that she has in place is really kind of this three-month plan. We're going to kind of truncate it down to about 30 days, and then you'll still have access to kind of the, the next piece and understanding what, you know, once you have that 30 days in place, you'll be fine. Um, Susan, last words, anything you wanted to say? Because we obviously covered a lot um, here. You know, I think really for me, it's it's helping people find their comfort zones. That's, you know, um, recognizing that you're not there um, and understanding that that once you're there, it, you float in and out. But it is a lifestyle for a lifetime that will adapt and evolve in your life and that it's not you're not looking for it. You know, as Americans, we are experts at, uh, you know, going on a diet to go off a diet, right? And and instead, I wanted to call the good mood diet the good mood life. And the publisher said people will think it's a novel and they won't buy it. But that's really the, that's what I want. I want a good mood life. And and that's, that's what the goal is. And having started with uh, an NBA all-star player, uh, then tried it in my mom, <laughs> then... Uh, done a group uh, during the dark days uh, of winter in Seattle. It's a it and and then um, groups around the country, sort of good mood diet clubs around the country. When we launched the book, and then uh, certainly applying these principles with every client, every team, everything that I do, you know, um, nourishing your body and and feeding your brain are are essential to a good mood life and 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 loving yourself as as you said and I think that was so well put um, 
and and hating food that becomes your body <laughs> isn't isn't the way to start uh, loving yourself. So so uh, I'm really looking forward to to working with Eat to Perform, and uh, and I think it's going to be a fun ride. So we should um, also introduce people to the fact that you have a, a newer book that's also pretty relevant. So can you talk about that and give a little snippet? Because we do have a large audience for that book. Yeah, so the new Power Eating, uh, it is actually the fifth edition of my best-selling book, Power Eating. But this fifth edition, uh, we got very creative and gave it a new title and called it the new Power Eating. Um, and and in that book is about eating for strength and power, uh, cutting fat and increasing strength. And we uh, in that book, I have always woven in um, information about the brain and central nervous system and how to feed and take and take full advantage of of uh, the tricks of the trade as well as uh, what to do every day. And so I've got a number of new chapters in there. If you have been a follower of power eating, I now have a full chapter on the female athlete, even though I've always included the um, information for women and girls. It, it, it's, it's really called out now. Uh, and I have two chapters on the brain uh, and, and lots of stories um, uh, the new power eating is, has been always a periodized nutrition plan, uh, since the very beginning. And, and so you can sort of follow it through as you are going through different stages of your training, uh, both in and out of training over the year, um, various sports and uh, also for cross-training. I mean, basically everybody strength trains now, and that's wonderful. So it's, it, you don't have to be a football player to follow Power Eating. So the new Power Eating is a, is a brand new book, lots of uh, endorsements from elite coaches and athletes, and it's a, a work I'm very proud of. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that when we look at the cycles of Eat to Perform, and when we talk about these longer periods where you're not dieting, that's where new power eating would come in. Amazing. And I would highly recommend it to anybody that's listening and wants to know a little bit more and wants to know, you know, people have been asking me, like, are there any books? We obviously have some e-books and things of this nature, but nothing as good as what Susan's doing there, right? So um, if you get a chance, pick that up. I think any little snippet that you'll learn it's going to be super helpful. Well, I appreciate you doing this, and uh, I'm really excited about the, the, the course because I think that it's going to allow people to sort of make that transition into viewing food as a positive. And as you were kind of saying things in terms of, you know, the good mood life, you know, it really is about just adding pieces Right. Sort of like the way that I view the Minnesota State Fair. It's like I have all my foods that I like. What one more food can I add that what I would also like? Right. So I, I would challenge everyone to kind of look at at, you know, their diet that way to where if you can view food as an ally, what can you bring into the equation? And that's a lot of what the, the course is going to be about. So appreciate everybody being here. And Susan, I appreciate you doing this. And we'll talk to you later. Thanks, Paul. Bye now.